For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. You can probably tell, or you already know, that I don't make this show on a whim. I pre-plan weeks in advance to get the guest and topic mix right. But sometimes things change. Case in point are crazy global times right now. Countries have closed their borders. Lockdowns are being extended. People are frightened of sickness and worrying about how hospitals will cope. And we're also worried about economic shocks. I mean, literally, how are we going to pay the bills? And I should say that when we recorded this, which was only a few days ago, in Australia it felt like worrying about not being able to have family gatherings or do fun stuff was the big thing. Fast forward, and now it's like, this could go on for six months or more. We're really thinking, will there be jobs at the end of it? And it feels like every morning you wake up, you check your phone, and there's just another barrage of shocking news headlines. But the other day, a positive email popped into my inbox, and it was from my friend David Ritter, who is the CEO of Greenpeace Australia Pacific. And it was titled, Love in the Time of Coronavirus. And he described um, coming home to Sydney from a trip to Melbourne and watching the news and feeling all this anxiety that he was really far away from his family. And he writes, to hug my family on Saturday morning again was to experience the purest relief and joy. And he describes this moment in history as one that feels like the world coming undone. But he also asks us to look at the bigger picture. And he writes, now is the time to think at the systems level of how we can become nations that care for human beings and the natural world on which we all depend. And he charged us in the name of love to challenge the harm being done to the earth. He reminded us that the climate emergency hasn't gone away. But he also suggested that those of us who remain healthy, although potentially confined for ages in our homes, maybe we could use this time for creativity, inspiration and ingenuity – to, as he writes, and these are his words, find new and brilliant ways to do what must be done. And I just loved it, especially with everyone. I just found those words so helpful. If we could take this time to create something good from this moment, which is obviously a bad one. So I emailed David right back and I asked him if he'd come on the podcast to talk about it. And he said, yes. So here he is. Let us know what you think. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press. It's easy to find Greenpeace on Instagram in your own country, but the Aussie website is greenpeace.org.au. Welcome, David Richards, the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. Thank you, Claire. We're recording this in your eerily quiet office. It's a very strange office today. There's virtually no one here at all, and usually it is a hive of activists and volunteers and staff working out what we do to change the world but yeah it's very empty today. We actually talked about doing this virtually but I don't want to go down that route until I have to because I have made a virtue of doing all these interviews face to face but we did talk about like okay practically we're sitting across a wide table we haven't shaken hands I disinfected your mic (laughs) and gave it to you to set up these are really weird times. They are weird times. We haven't measured it, but I'm confident we're sitting 1.5 metres apart. But this could be our new normal for we don't even know how long. Well, we don't know how long, but I think the best available information is that it's going to be months at least. So, yeah, these are strange days. David, the other day, a Greenpeace newsletter popped into my inbox, and it was an unusual one in that it was quite personal, written by you. And the subject header was Love in the Time of Coronavirus. Good title. Are you quite literary? 
Well, I didn't actually come up with the title, though I did write the rest of the email um, myself. And but I, it's I, a nod to Marquez, Love in the Time of Cholera, right? It's absolutely a nod to Marquez, and there have been a few Love in the Times of... Um, there was an earlier piece about Love in the Time of Bleaching, but it was written from the heart. I mean, it was a, a very genuine letter from the heart because we are all experiencing the real strangeness of this moment when it feels like the world is coming apart and all that was familiar is becoming strange to us. Places look different, people are behaving differently and things we had taken for granted, we aren't able to take for granted anymore. And so in that moment of everything feeling strange, um, I wanted to talk as directly as possible to the you know 1.8 million or however many people uh, are on the Greenpeace Australia mailing list about how we are all feeling but about the love and the hope that still can animate what we all do. We are going to get onto that, but I do still feel justified in charging you with being quite literary, David, because we both spoke at some mutual launches for our books. Yours is The Cold Truth and mine is Rise and Resist. And actually, you're a lyrical writer. You do, you are quite literary. Well, <laughs> that's very kind of you, but I'm embarrassed, I guess, by that characterisation. But I've always loved books and books, though they may be less fashionable than they used to be, books still sit on my desk. So Ali Smith's Spring sits on my desk. Camus' The Plague is one of my favourite novels because it is a novel of such extraordinary humanity and decency and solidarity. I've actually never read that. I was thinking about the Marquez reference to Love in the Time of Cholera. I read it about 20 years ago. I can't remember the plot. (laughs) But Camus, so he wrote this book, La Peste or The Plague, which apparently is on every school curriculum, but I've never read it. You referenced it in your letter and you said... Albert Camus, who wrote In a Time of Plague, we learn that there are far more things to admire in people than to despise. And you said, we're seeing the truth of Camus' words play out across the world now in millions of acts of love, decency, professionalism and kindness. But I was like, OK, I've been watching the footage on Twitter of people literally fighting in the supermarket aisles over toilet roll. Yeah, well, Camus was reflecting on not just the literal plague in his book, but also the struggle against fascism that Europe had just been through and was reflecting, I think, immensely optimistically on what that also said about the ability of human beings to struggle through and resist collectively. Now, this is a different set of circumstances, but as we look around, yes, it would be really easy to be distracted by some of the incidents that we've seen, people squabbling, but set against the overwhelming majority of things that are going on. Think about every teacher, every educator of small children, every health professional who is turning up, every scientist and public servant who is doing their duty, who is showing up, everyone who is caring for their neighbour, everyone who is setting up a social media group about sharing, people who are thinking ahead about their family and their friends. Look, even some of those things that are being characterised as acts of selfishness are actually about people who are thinking about how they might care for those Mm. around them. And it's really easier for the media and for social media to turn this into a story of selfishness let's not i was going to say that because of course that's what we're looking for the meme the shareable thing the outrageous thing and you know that that's just how social media can work 
I think that's so true. There's this rush towards yeah. the story of the individual. But now is a time to be thinking about the systems. Mm. And I've reflected a bit on that opening line from that letter that you referred back to. Yeah, so let's read it out. I've written it here. In fact, you should read it out. I'm going to pass it to you. Oh, Go on. I am writing. Um, okay. Do I get to clear my throat? <clears> throat? I'm writing to you now because we are again at one of those pivotal moments when it feels like the world is coming undone. The arrival of COVID-19 so soon after the fire and smoke of the last spring and summer is a shock upon shock. The bushfires affected almost 80% of Australians. Now the COVID-19 virus will impact us all, one way or another. So when I read that and I said it pinged into my inbox a couple of days ago and I thought, yeah, we are. I've been feeling that we're at this very strange moment that feels... I keep thinking about war. I'm lucky enough to have never lived through war where I reside. Obviously, there's always wars. But we're this generation that hasn't had to go through the hardships that, for example, my grandparents went through. We just don't understand it. Mm. We take for granted our freedoms, our ridiculous almost expectation that we can have and do whatever we want whenever we want when we know that so many people around the world don't live like that but I think this has been very jarring for those of us who are lucky to live somewhere like Australia and not have to worry about the day-to-day suddenly we've got to worry about it so I was I was saying to you before David that I drove which I hardly ever do because I thought I shouldn't get public transport which is also weird and let's get on to that the eco consequences of no keep cups etc but I drove to the library thinking I'd get some books and it would be a nice moment to reset and there was a sign on the door and it said we're closed until mid-April at least for social distancing. Yes these are very very strange days there's no doubt about it and it's odd the things that come to mind. I mean, as you said that, I'm thinking of the stories in my own family. Um, my, my parents were quite old when I was born. My father was a Holocaust survivor who happily was not caught in at all but got out to Britain in '38. But still there'd been some time when there was enforced isolation at home of being able to do nothing but play Monopoly. My mother was a, an English kid caught in the Blitz who was meant to be going on her first ever trip overseas to Paris in May 1940, but Mr Hitler got there first. Now, the stories that I grew up with of the kind of postponing of social life suddenly feel like, in a very different way, but they're all around. And also when we look at the what seems to be, oh, no big deal, like my husband was really disappointed because they've cancelled his gig for his band excited about something that's coming up and then suddenly it's off the table we have no idea for how long and it's interesting isn't it because it's affecting all of us like if you're excited to go on a trip or to go to a speak at a conference or to go and protest about stop Adani in the streets it's interfering with everything and you know if you want to see piteous tears my seven-year-old has had her cater to disco cancelled and they are the piteous tears of a seven-year-old but again we we keep all these things in perspective for Mm. Australians who don't have a roof over their heads, for Indigenous communities already experiencing levels of disadvantage that aren't experienced by the rest of the community. I keep panicking about the homeless because we're talking about social distancing and stay at home or the American term shelter in place. What if you don't have a place to shelter or a home? I mean, this is you're also more vulnerable potentially dealing with health conditions already. Just as you were during the fires. Again, it's the, the, those who are more vulnerable bore the burden of the fires and the smoke and they'll bear the burden of this. So we don't know how long it will last. But that's why I think, uh, reflecting back on that coming apart, actually there's a great coming together that is also true in this because people are 
looking out for each other, I think, now in ways that would have seemed foreign even a week and a half ago. There's a kind of neighbourliness that is being remembered, a sort of a social nature that is true to what we are as people that we are finding again really rapidly in this time of the coronavirus. All right, I'm going to be the gloom merchant again, and I promise we'll move towards hope. But when the fires happened in Australia over Christmas in particular and New Year, I felt absolutely panicky. I have to admit that I was really glad to leave and go back to London in Mm. January because I was on the verge of constant panic, and I'm sure many people felt like that, the air, can't breathe it, looking outside and seeing the red Sydney sun. And on this podcast, we haven't actually addressed this because the early episodes of this series were recorded before Christmas. But literally, the sky was glowing pink. You couldn't see the opera house in Sydney. You could feel and taste the smoke in the back of your throats. And this was in the city. Imagine what it was like in the direct path of the fire across so many parts of Australia. Yes, well, the testimony of people who got out only just is terrible. But the fires were so extensive that the testimony of of witnesses, of survivors, is a mass experience. Hundreds of thousands of Australians were evacuated. Some by the Australian Navy, many were told to get out on their own terms, on cars or whatever it might have been. David, just... As we're here, tell listeners who might not know about it the story of Malakuta and the red skies and how many people were stuck on the beach. So that's in Gippsland in Victoria, about yeah. 10 hours' drive from Melbourne on the coast. Yeah, so Malakuta was one of the iconic evacuations in Australia where a number of uh, thousand people, I think, were on the beach. And in this age of social media, they were getting out incredible images of the sky turning black and red and people on the beach. And it was only in the end the arrival of the Australian Navy that lifted them out. And for a country that is not used to internal refugees, there were these images of distressed people going out on smaller boats to get out on the Navy ships with the sky black around them with masks on. and In the middle of the day? In the middle of the day. This was not the black of night. This was darkness in daytime, darkness at noon, if you like. And in a sense, that darkness at noon was almost the national mood. I mean, that was Malakuta. But in Sydney, Clare, we had many days where you woke up with the taste of ash in your mouth. Ash on the cars, ash on the streets. I mean, it's very hard to explain this to listeners who are outside of Australia who watched the pictures but weren't there to see it. I mean, it was a really weird time and a long time. Weird and long. The pictures were not an anomaly. Like There is always that sense of, oh, yeah, maybe someone just took one amazing picture. The images were of what, just what it was like. I mean, you couldn't see across the harbour. The, the days of the ash just falling and the air being too dangerous to breathe to go outside, there were many days like that. I mean, we had days where the particulates in the air were something approaching 660, where the safe levels are below 200. I'm going to check those, so forgive me if they're not on the tip of my tongue. We'll share a link. However, this was a time where it was actually dangerous to go outside, closing schools, asking people to, to shelter in place, if you like. Yes, shelter in place. Windows closed. So bad that smoke alarms were going off in Inside buildings, so people were pouring off out into the street. The level of pollution so high that actually there was no health advice on what it might do to you. And the abiding memory I have of one of those days is I had a scheduled day of leave, which I 
took with my kids and um, the three of us are sitting inside. We're actually at the house of a friend's. And again, the, the smoke is thick. And this is Sydney, remember. This is not Mallacoota. This is not Kangaroo Valley, which was deeply threatened. But I, I pulled those places out of hundreds. Um, Tenterfield, the birthplace of Australia's uh, Federation, which was one of the very early places to witness catastrophic fire conditions. It's so many names one could pull out. This was in the middle of Sydney and the skies were dark and the air was too dangerous to breathe. This was at a time when Sydney's air was the worst in the world. Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra all took their turn of having the worst in the world. And the power went off and we're sitting inside and I'm sitting there with my kids and this is Sydney, Australia. And the lucky country the where we talk country. about our great our clean air and our beaches well, and blue skies. Well, I mean, the Donald Horn's idea of the lucky country was always meant as a satirical attack on a place that was, you know, led by second-rate leaders and, goodness me, didn't we have second-rate leadership in the course of the fires? Maybe second-rate is being uh, altogether too kind. But at that moment of it feeling again like the world was coming under such strain, you gather up the people you love in your arms and you play Monopoly or you, you play Scrabble and you give thanks for the fact that the taps still work and that you do have shelter mm. and there are things that you notice. What have we learnt or what can we learn from the bushfires that we might be able to apply in this global time of crisis with COVID-19? Well, I think we learnt about some of the worst of our leadership during the time of the bushfires and I think we learnt about some of the best of people. The bravery and dedication of the frontline responders to the Australian bushfires was an astonishing act of collective human dedication and all of those responders are the fireys but the emergency workers of all kind just deserve our heartfelt admiration and gratitude. You shared a picture of one of the firefighters in the letter that we opened talking about and we'll share it in the show notes to this have a look but it does remind you of the beauty of humanity. We do need to remember it, don't we? (laughs) I mean, the grin both breaks your heart and makes your heart, right? But it wasn't also just those who were uniformed. It was all who were doing that work of caring. So everyone who was checking in that their neighbour was okay, who was putting an arm around a child that was worried, who was working out how you organise as as a street in a local community. So there was all of those acts of coming together as a community and that just stood in real contrast to the sort of dismissive behaviour of our, particularly our Prime Minister Scott Morrison, Um, but the long-lasting negligence that they knew this was coming. There had been 18 warnings at least top-level expert warnings since 2013. From climate scientists? From climate scientists, from fire fire chiefs chiefs and others, saying that climate change was generative of catastrophic fire conditions. They knew it was coming, they chose not to prepare, and the consequences were borne by the community and by nature. But, David, they're continuing to do f***ing about it. (laughs) I'm glad it was you that uh, used the obscenity first, not me. Look, the question is out there. How is history going to remember Scott Morrison? Is he going to be the man who looked the future in the eye and said, I will do what needs to be done. We will listen 
to the science. We will protect the Australian people. Well, you've answered your own question by posing it. This is a man who came into the Australian Parliament brandishing a lump of coal. This is a man who's famous for saying, how good is dot, 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 and we may insert the words fossil fuels. He never has said that as far as I know, but he may as well. In fact, he did say, how good is mining? At a recent, fairly recent, before Christmas, large meeting of mining head honchos in Queensland. How good is mining? So actually, no. Yeah. Well, look, there's, there's not a great deal <laughs> there to get... I'm in my stump box now, because I do there, think it's important that we call it out for what it is. There, Corruption, great... and actually this government and others like it are in the pockets of the fossil fuel companies. Yeah, I think institutional corruption is the word for it. It doesn't have to be what we know as criminal corruption, but institutional corruption where public institutions are corrupted in favour of vested interests. Absolutely. I wasn't going to bring this up, but since you raised it, do you want to just tell us, and we'll share a link, about the piece of work that was done by Greenpeace or in collaboration with Greenpeace, unlocking all of the connections between people in power, mining lobbies, etc. Yes. Well, this was a piece called Dirty Power, and it was a piece of investigative work that we did jointly with the journalist Michael West. And what it was designed to do was to just show the web of connections that sit underneath the political power brokers in the coalition and connect them to the coal industry. Now, just to be clear, in Australia, it's not confined to one side of politics, but that was where that particular piece of research was focused. It's called Dirty Power. And the really interesting thing about it is during the fires there was a big increase in organic traffic to that piece of work as people were trying to understand why is it that this Australian government has not done anything about climate change and is not doing anything about coal now because coal is our number one contribution to climate change in Australia. We have to get off it. It's interesting that we got onto this train of thought after I asked you what we can learn from the bushfires because one of the things I think you said in your letter that we need to learn is that we need and I quote media that is properly resourced independent and accurate we need politicians telling the truth and acting in the public interest and we need independent scientists and experts to whom decision makers listen and accord respect and you said our lives depend on these things Mm. Well, they do, and we found that out absolutely in the fires when it was the expertise of those who knew how fires work, (laughs) the science of fires, if you like, and the practical expertise of those who know the country and those who are expert in fighting the things. All of that level of expertise is what kept as many Australians safe as stayed safe and, you know, managed to keep so many um, structures and the, the story about the Wallamai Pines and getting evacuations out. Oh, tell us that out. story. It's actually so amazing. I shared the picture on Twitter and cried. I'm always crying. Well, it was this... this so what, what are they? <laughs> so there are the, these um, dinosaur pines that I... Look, tell the truth, and I'm embarrassed about this. I have never seen, but I've loved the idea of ever since I learnt about them when I was, you know, a kid at school... Because they date from... They, they're dinosaurs. They're, they're very, very, very old species and there are very few of them. And they continue to grow in a little valley in the World Heritage area in New South Wales. And, and they're protected. You're not allowed to know where they are. You're not allowed to know. And, and they were saved through a, an emergency effort by the fire services. Climate is both intensely political and absolutely apolitical and the sadness is that it has been allowed to become 
party political in Australia in a way that it really hasn't most other places. Because what we're talking about is a set of really fundamental things. Science should be outside of politics, protecting the citizenry and protecting the natural world and the institutions that are the foundation of all that makes us prosperous and flourish. That should actually be outside of politics. Now, we can have an argument about how you do it, and that's where politics should be. But the argument about the aim should be as beyond politics as the aim of having a healthy population. It should be, but we do know that those polarisations, lefties, greenies, and then the right, the extractors and the hypercapitalists, those do ring true. I'm going to come back to Camus admitting I've never read Lapest. <laughs> well, and do read it, Claire. You'll library. enjoy it, I'm I sure. It's a wonderful book. I can't get the book. out of the library now. <laughs> I'll have to buy it. Fine. I'll That's mail fine. you a copy. No, no, do let's <laughs> buy it, because also in this time of crisis, we need to support local businesses, we need to support bookshops, so I shall be buying it after this. But just coming back to him, I found this Guardian article by the British journalist Ed Villami, written around the time of the Ebola outbreak. And he talked about how Camus' novel could be taken literally in times of plague, but he wrote, Nowadays I think La Peste, so that's its title in French, can tell the story of a different kind of plague, that of a destructive, hyper-materialist, turbo-capitalism. Thoughts? <laughs> Is capitalism incompatible with protecting our natural world or living in harmony with it? Look, the current form of economic system is absolutely incompatible with a, a flourishing civilization and flourishing nature because it's premised on a whole lot of fossil fuel use and it's premised on extracting materials from the earth that we can't keep on using at the rate that we are. But it's also premised on stressing human beings in a way that means that we are vulnerable to things. So there's room for debate between those who... Um, about how we modify the current system. But there should be no debate about the fact that the current system needs really serious change. And you'll find the wisdom to accept that right across the political spectrum. It's just a question of how much and how. Are we in danger of losing momentum in the climate movement as we focus on the economy now and on coronavirus? Well, now is a time of tragedy and of immense opportunity. And um, the tragedy is the suffering. And the tragedy is people are dying, people are ill, people are scared. But the immensity of the opportunity is that this can be one of those moments where disruption causes all of our underlying assumptions to be questioned. Do you think? I hope. Let us all think of what is happening as people are forced to question the system that delivers us to this point. I mean, do we honestly think that anyone now wishes the government had made more cuts to media or to essential services or to health for the imaginary good of the budget surplus? <laughs> Will anyone regret the fact that dolphins are being seen in Italian ports and wonder what it might be like if we always had the dolphins in the ports because we had re-geared the way we interact with the world in a way that means we can have civilization and nature coexisting? And if we want to see all this visualised, how it could become, you yeah. and I are both fans of the film 2040, Claire. I think it's brilliant. 
Yeah, because it's so full of hope, isn't it? The possibility of what we might redraw society to look like and how we might operate. And the fact that the tools are already there. And the fact that the tools are already there. It's just doing the best of what we already know how to do. And to come back to your question, which I think is a great question, and it's the question that is on my mind all the time at the moment, is what do we do now? Well, let's take inspiration from people who have responded in circumstances of repression and oppression and fear who have still managed to keep the light of political change alive. Let's just touch on uh, the images which I'm sure that listeners will have seen that come from NASA, satellite images of the air above Wuhan in China. Well, it's remarkable, isn't it? The air has cleared, the brown splodge has gone. But we have in our power now all of the technologies we need to cure those brown splodges in Wuhan and in London, which often has the worst air in Europe, and in Sydney, which had that terrible air over summer. And let's not forget that even when there are no bushfires, airborne particulates from coal-burning power stations in Australia kill hundreds of people every year, and we have worse air pollution controls on those coal-burning power stations than China, the US or the EU. We can solve this now with the solutions that we have without a virus. I do just want to talk about planetary health more broadly. And I should point out the obvious that neither David nor I is a medical expert or a scientist, and we obviously recognise the complexity of the coronavirus issue. But I do want to ask you just as an environmentalist, David, about some of the stories that are emerging about the potential origins of this virus around planetary health. This story, again from The Guardian, this time from environment editor John Vidal. Um, It ran on March the 18th, and we'll share a link. And I'm not sorry for constantly referencing The Guardian, because actually one of the best sources of unbiased and good journalism. It's from his cheery series, The Age of Extinction, and it's called The Tip of the Iceberg, Is Our Destruction of Nature Responsible for COVID-19? And he, he argues that it's about... We're living more closely together in cities, obviously crammed together. We're also closer to our once wild places where viruses can more easily leap between species. But the thing that got me was this. He writes, only a decade or two ago, it was widely thought that tropical forests and intact natural environments teeming with exotic wildlife threatened humans because they harboured these viruses. So he references Ebola and dengue. But now, he says, a number of researchers today think it's actually humanity's destruction of biodiversity that creates these conditions for new diseases. And we need to sort of sort out our balance with nature. Yeah, it's such a good piece, and it's a great piece by John Vidal. And let's honour... I mean, I think you're totally right about honouring the journalists as well, and the John Vidals and in Australia, the, the Peter Hannams and the Adam Mortons and Bill the McKibbins. Paddy Mannings. Let's, let's you know, shout out, um, and let's shout out the Claire Presses for that <laughs> matter. Um, <laughs> and, but promise you don't edit that out. <laughs> um, I think there's a few things going on there. When you put a system under stress, and we are putting all of our Earth systems under immense stress, there will be perverse consequences, and we're seeing those perverse consequences. And again, the the climate scientists, the health experts, I mean, in Australia, Professor Hilary Bambrick, have been warning for years that there would be epidemiological consequences of the climate emergency. That much we have been warned about. But let's also think about the great point that John Vidal makes there around how we think about nature, that idea that nature is a threat. Part of the leap that we have to make, the paradigm leap that we have to make, is that leap back to thinking of nature not as a threat, not as a stranger, 
but nature as what we are from, what we come back to, our mother, if you like, what we depend on for all of our bounty. For I mean, nature is life itself. And for so long as we are on that path of thinking that life itself is a threat to us, there's no bridge to a return to balance. Okay, let's talk about Greenpeace. We're here in Greenpeace's Asia-Pacific headquarters in Sydney. You are the CEO of Greenpeace in this region. Tell us the story of Greenpeace. I actually wrote about it in Rise and Resist. So it was started in 1971 trying to take action in Alaska, right? Can you tell us that story? Yeah, so the US was planning to go ahead with a nuclear test at Amchitka in Alaska. And there were a group of people who thought that was a terrible idea because nuclear weapons were threatening life on Earth and testing them was another dimension of that madness. And so they uh, got a boat, a ramshackle old fishing boat called the Phyllis Cormac. Phyllis? The Phyllis Cormac, yep. Not the Phyllis, Phyllis as, as in, in the name. As in the woman's name. As in the woman's name. Phyllis, how lovely. I oh, it, it is lovely. The and, there, and if you go to Greenpeace <laughs> offices around the world, you'll often find a Phyllis Cormac room in honour of that clunky old ship. And they sailed it out to try and get in the way of the nuclear testing in waters that were pretty severe. We're talking the North Atlantic. And they survived. They didn't manage to get in the way of the nuclear test to stop them, which was the aim. But an extraordinary thing happened, Claire, when this group of, and I use this this term with great love and affection, this group of hippies turned up back to port. They were greeted with great welcome because... The story of the voyage, the, the sort of, it became this rapidly developing legend of the voyage, had deepened and spread anti-nuclear testing sentiment in a way that they, they really couldn't believe the, the effectiveness of the story of the protest. What about the context? Because very early 70s, we're looking at the start of Earth Day. We're looking at huge pollution, for example, in the United States and a rising feeling that we needed to take care and take note of what was happening with the environment. Yeah, look, it's an amazing time with a modern environmental movement. And, of course, the environmental movement, if you want to call it that, goes back tens of thousands of years with the custodianship of the planet by Indigenous civilizations. But this was the birth, really, of the modern environmental movement. Rachel Carson's uh, Silent Spring uh, is only 10 years or so old. The emergence of a number of what we now see as the institutional uh, environmental NGOs. So what would they be? I mean, it's not just Greenpeace. Yeah, I'm thinking in Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth. Um, and the campaign for nuclear disarmament in all its forms. And, of course, a whole lot of um, things that flourish and spike up and then probably disappear because not everything lasts and grows. And, you know, and out of Greenpeace, of course, comes Sea Shepherd about 10 years later. But there's a whole lot of that sort of ways of thinking around environmental activism that really... Uh, associated with that early Greenpeace uh, ideal. So let's just talk briefly about what Greenpeace does now and what tools you use. What's your mission? Yeah, well, the mission is to uh, secure an earth capable of nurturing life in all of its magnificent diversity. And it's a mission I can always say with feeling because... You're smiling. Because it's a real and thing, so am Claire. I. It makes a smile. <laughs> like when you were saying it, I was thinking, and who wouldn't want that mission? I mean, come on. And I do smile when I say it. Um, I've, I've been in this job for you know eight years now, and I've been with Greenpeace for thirteen, and I've been a you know financial donor of, to Greenpeace 
because we never take any money from any government or any business ever. You know, back when I was a lawyer, a commercial lawyer in my early 20s, I gave my 30 bucks or whatever it was a month to Greenpeace and, I, you know, I, I skip to work just about literally still, not because I'm flippant about the state of the world, but because to have that um, genuine honour and sense of service that comes with putting all that you are and can do and believe in in the service of your values and the planet that despite all its wounds is so beautiful and to think of the lives of your children and all children and the beautiful places that there are and the things that you notice in the morning with the buds of of even the smallest flower and the smallest verge how can you not smile I know. How, how can you not be a greenie? Why do we not all feel like this? I was just thinking the other day about birds. I mean, sorry to go off piece, but whenever I see a bird, I always say hello or a bee. Hello. <laughs> I feel so delighted. But it does make you feel happy, doesn't it, to be amongst the wonder? Absolutely. Even and when it's only in suburbia. Absolutely. We, we crave contact with the natural world. But one of the consequences of the system we have constructed is that we are both pushed away from it and we lose understanding of it. We think cucumbers naturally come in plastic or that you can get strawberries all the year round. But in truth, we crave it and we are healthier and happier when we are closer to it. I asked you what your tools were. What tools does Greenpeace use to try to affect change? There are a whole range of things that Greenpeace can do and does across the world. And it's everything from, yes, the famous kind of peaceful actions where we do put people on boats in the way of oil rigs or um, people blocking up um, toxic pipes famously or climbing down buildings to draw attention to decisions that boardrooms would like to hide. So all of that kind of peaceful civil disobedience, of course. But we also do political lobbying, uh, litigation. Greenpeace Australia Pacific was actually the first piece of climate litigation anywhere in the world was filed by Greenpeace. Really? Um, when was it? Uh, 1995. And what was it? Uh, it was about the Red Bank coal uh, power developments and it lost, unfortunately. The world would be a different place had it been successful, but the law is evolving. Corporate campaigning we have been doing for many, many years across supply chains. But the crucial thing is that all of what we do starts with the power of people. We don't take money from anywhere else. We are people-powered, both in terms of our campaigning activities and how the place is built. So it's all about igniting the shared economic, social, political power of people to drive that earth capable of nurturing life in all of its magnificent diversity. And I missed out one massive one, which, of course, is storytelling. So the idea of the mind bomb, that a single image can transform consciousness is an idea generated by Bob Hunter, who was one of the founders of Greenpeace. I'm looking, actually, at uh, a picture on the wall in this meeting room which says, where have all the tuna gone? There's a flag in the ocean, otherwise empty. And I know the origins of that particular campaign, which was, if I can say, a spectacularly successful campaign in the UK that transformed the market of tuna to be as sustainable as it can be. 
all the time that's looking for um, that image that can transform how people think and the way stories are told. And culture is central. So Joni Mitchell and Phil Oakes did a very early Greenpeace fundraiser. We've had classical composers in the Arctic, the puppeteers. Oh, that will share that, my God. It's one of my favourites. Playing the piano. Playing the piano. Just last week we had the Australian launch of a film uh, starring Javier and Carlos Bardem who went to Antarctica where Greenpeace is part of a coalition pushing for ocean sanctuaries to complement the World Park Antarctica that was one of our huge campaigns of the 80s and 90s. I love that we ended up by talking about the power that we have to make change. I'm always trying to answer that question, what can we do? Now that I'm sitting here with you, with your Greenpeace hat on, what can we practically do tomorrow? Even if we are self-isolating at home, what can we do? So the call to arms does not change. We must transition to clean energy as fast as we possibly can. So wherever you are in the world, however isolated you might be, and Claire, let's just send out love and solidarity and hugs, virtual hugs to everyone who is in isolation because it's tricky. You can pick up the phone and ring a decision maker and demand change. You can find a pencil and a piece of paper and write a letter to demand change. A pencil. A pencil. Well, I don't know why I chose a pencil. I love it. Let's make it a pen. Let's Let's make make it a pen and ink if you like. You can also type or use a quill pen. (laughs) My kids love it when I bring out my 45-year-old typewriter. Um, For so long as you have access to the internet, you can send emails, you can get on websites, you can can support organisations who are going to be continuing to do their work through this. You can research. If you've got a few hours you weren't expecting to have, say, do some this, digging. Use this time. Use this time as some kind of gift to think through the ways in which we might change. And personally, you might in your own life make change. You can make change. You can manifest hope. I have very little patience for, for the sort of those who are saying it's all over. As we live and breathe... It is not all over. As Greta Thunberg, who is one of my heroes, says, for so long as it is possible within the laws of physics and chemistry, it is possible. As Michael Mann, the great climate scientist who's in Australia at the moment, says, we still have agency, and that is what matters. As Christina Figueres says, it is now ours, the world to choose. As a dear friend of mine in the climate movement in Australia, Jessica Panagiris, has said to me, we don't know if we can solve the climate crisis yet because we're yet to really try. But if there is one thing we do know, it is that human beings working together can achieve practically anything. Let's (laughs) grab the moment. Go, David. (laughs) Now it's getting hard. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I don't go away because everything is just fine. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. 
Subscribe is the first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis, so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you, because I love you.